Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career, and what matters to them. Arnie Nimi started his professional theatre career in 1962 as a dancer in a Christmas pantomime at Melbourne's Tivoli Theatre. He has worked mainly as a director and a lecturer in both vocational and academic institutions throughout Australia and in New Zealand and Singapore. Arnie has directed well over 300 productions covering the whole classical and contemporary repertoire and specialising in new writing. He's been the artistic director of a number of organisations and has worked for most of the major theatre companies. Most notably, he has held the positions of artistic director of National Theatre Company Perth, Hunter Valley Theatre Company, Hole in the Wall Theatre Company and head of the theatre department at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and senior fellow at the National University of Singapore. Since 2001, he has also worked in television, directing on drama series such as Blue Healers, All Saints, MDA, Home and Away and Neighbours. Arnie is currently working as a freelance director and teacher and we welcome him as our guest today on Stages. Hello Arnie. Hello Peter. <laughs> Welcome back to Australia. Um, nice uh, to be back. Yeah. Yeah, nice to be back, I'm sure. At yeah. the um, arrival of COVID, you were teaching in Singapore. That's right. I was. I was. I was. Uh, had a. Uh, I actually got into Singapore the day before it became locked down, so I was very lucky. Uh, when I went through the airport, there was a general scanning machine, but if you didn't have a temperature, you were allowed through. But the day after, I arrived on the Sunday because I was going to start teaching on the Monday. The day after, they um, the uh, there had to be uh, compulsory uh, isolations and, and what have you. But I wasn't so lucky on getting back. So uh, when my contract finished, uh, I uh, I uh, this, is, oh, this is just a by and by interesting thing is I, I was booked on a plane and um, I had a communication from the airlines to say that the flight had been cancelled. Uh, presumably, not enough people or what have you. Uh, which was okay, but the worst thing was they wanted me to rebook and pay for a new seat. That's uh, outrageous. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> what I thought. So I got in touch with my lovely um, uh, flight um, uh, travel agent, travel agent here, who's uh, who was terrific, and she was able to cut it down just to a two hundred dollar excess. But it just this madness. I mean, it wasn't my fault. No, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I, I got back, uh, and uh, although I tried to find out, I got in touch with the embassy in Singapore to say, you know, can you let me know what, what I expect or do I need to do anything? I really got very little from them. So when we arrived at the airport here in Sydney, we were immediately escorted by um, what looked like army and uh, police people. Uh, we were told to wear our masks and taken to a, a discreet part of the airport where we were uh, tested for temperatures, again, things like that. I mean, I must say Singapore was very good like that. I had my temperature taken twice a day anyway. Uh, and the, the mask wearing is almost compulsory in, in terms of uh, um, on the streets everywhere, people wearing masks. Was it compulsory on the plane? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yep, the entire yep, time, yep, right? Yep. Except for eating, I suppose. Well, yeah, you slipped off for eating. But the funny thing about the plane was it was all it was still almost empty. The plane was still almost empty. Again. Uh, anyway, Um so um, travel agent, you organised a new ticket, and uh, I couldn't get any information, but we were met by a combination of police and uh, army people thrown into buses and um, had no idea where we were finished. And as it was, we finished at the Park Royal um, uh, Harbourside, um, 
which is part of town I don't know very well, and uh, we're immediately sort of bundled into into rooms. Um, the room was certainly comfortable enough. Uh, there was it was uh, long and narrow, but the the problem was that you weren't allowed to get out the door. I mean, you weren't given a key, for example. Um, you weren't allowed to leave the room. People would assume that two weeks in the Park Royal would be uh, quite a prize, but... Um, well, yes and no. Not in times of COVID, in isolation. Um, because, like the... Uh, it was funny, I, years ago I, uh, um, I was um, uh, teaching at Parramatta Prison um, and um, the, uh, I remember the prisoners would, in the, the room that we worked in, because it was larger than their cells, would just pace backwards and forwards. And I found myself doing this in the hotel just to get some exercise. <laughs> exercise yeah, yeah. I can tell you, in fact, 24 steps it was from one end to the other. It was it was long but narrow. Um, so I, I think uh, you'd have a knock on the door three times a day, uh, open the door, and there'd be a food parcel there for you. And then at the end of the day, you'd leave uh, your rubbish out the door. But you you certainly weren't allowed to leave the room as it were. Uh, I suppose that's sensible in terms of the disease because there's still, as you see on the news today or every day, there's always hotel um, cases. Um, so, it, yeah, it was a, a, a little bit... Uh, the, the windows were sealed. Uh, my wife, Julie, brought me some stuff. She couldn't get into the hotel. I had to leave it at the front door and they delivered it. But I would wave to her from the second floor window <laughs> with her on the street. So it was a little bit sort of... Uh, a little bit sad in that regard, but anyway, it, 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 the time passed and everything was well. And all experiences to invest in some uh, theatrical, dramatic creation in the future. Yes, perhaps. yes, <laughs> yes. If you wanted to bore the audience to death, <laughs> <laughs> you said you uh, worked at Parramatta Prison. Yeah, yeah. Jim McNeil, the playwright, that's, that's was when there. Jim, I believe that's when Jim was there. Yeah, yeah. And so you worked with him. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, a, a group called the Resurgence, which was uh, about. Eight, eight prisoners who were literary minded and um, and really were interested in theatre and especially I spurred on by Jim's achievements and I actually saw some of his plays produced in, in Parramatta prison. with prisoners playing the roles which mm-hmm. was really extraordinary. Um, Would they take on all of the creative roles as well, d- yeah, designing and direction? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, most most of those early plays were actually set in prison cells, so it was wasn't a big stretch, but. Uh, yeah, the sad thing about Jim was that, you know, when he got released, um, he unfortunately succumbed to the temptations of, of everyday life. And uh, whereas when he was in prison, he was in his cell for 10 hours a day and he would write. And, yeah. and when he got out, he uh, started, unfortunately, he started drinking and, uh, and uh, he really did very little after his release, which was a, a shame. Do you think he had potential to be one of our great Australian playwrights? Well, he, he had insights. I, I, uh, I did, um, when I was in Perth, uh, following uh, a few years later, I did uh, uh, a couple of his plays, um, and I enjoyed them thoroughly. I think he had great insights into people and, and their relationships and things. Obviously, more from a restricted, there weren't a lot of women <laughs> in his plays. But... Um, uh, yeah, and look, I think he was... And I think that was why there was that strong push to try to get him out of prison because they thought that he was, in fact... Uh, Catherine Brisbane and Philip Parsons especially thought that he had a lot to offer and uh, wanted him released for that reason. But uh, it didn't turn out, unfortunately, yeah. And became part of the theatre fraternity to uh, to a degree. I mean, in marrying uh, Robin Nevin, a 
great Australian actor. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes, yes. And uh, there were, you, you made there was a there was a, a time when Jim came to see one of his plays at Inverell Street, and Robin was in, and um, I think it was John Gaydon who was playing opposite her, and uh, he got very involved and leapt on his feet and, and tried to stop the play, <laughs> not because of the quality of the acting, but because of what he felt was a threat to. To Robin or whatever. Couldn't separate reality yeah. and illusion. Yeah. yeah. Arnie, am I correct in uh, the knowledge that your stage debut was dancing in a Christmas pantomime at the Tivoli Theatre in Melbourne? Um, it, I suppose it was my professional debut. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd been involved in dance for two or three years before that, and uh, that was my first big professional gig um, at the, t- yeah, the old Tivoli in Melbourne. Uh, I think it was a ballet version of Robin Hood, if I remember correctly and I think I played Will Scarlet I remember I had Scarlet tights um, and it was it was in my last year of high school and um, like a good little migrant boy I'd studied sciences and maths um, uh, at, at high school and actually got sort of entry into physics at Melbourne University and uh, engineering at Monash why I'd got no idea um, but I decided then that I wanted a career in a the theatre and there was very little professional dance work. The Australian Ballet was just in its infancy and the only professional job for a, for a dancer was being like the Channel 9 dancers, you know, for the evening for the, uh, review uh, show. For the IMT Yeah, that, that sort shows. of thing, yeah, yeah. Uh, which didn't sort of seem to be very uh, challenging. So I, I did what, you know, any 17-year-old boy does. I, I wrote to every theatre in Melbourne and said, you know, I'd like a job and willing to start and do anything, da-da-da-da. And um, the only reply I got was from Walt Jerry's Emerald Hill Theatre. And Walt had just been running that theatre in South Melbourne for a year. And uh, I don't know, something... I think he'd seen me do some dance work for the Victorian Ballet Guild, because um, he and uh, George Whaley were, would do extra money by... Uh, being the producers, you know, the the, the, the stage crew of, um, of things. That was at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda. Uh, that's what, so where I first saw him anyway. So they offered me a job. Um, and um, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> what pulled you to the dance? Because you said you were uh, studying it uh, from well, what age? I, 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 from 11. Um, and the reason is, again, is, is really prosaic in the sense that I fell in love with a 14-year-old girl who was, <laughs> who was in the school dance group, right? Yep. And so I wanted to be with her. And the next thing, the ballet teacher was saying, you've got ability, and encouraged me to go and take extra classes with a, a wonderful man called Paul Hammond, who... Uh, um, and um, the rest, uh, yeah, happened there. And then I sort of got into the theatre world. I remember... Uh, at the old uh, St Martin's Theatre, I think it was, um, Little Theatre was those days, we did a, a group of three ballets, and the first one had, I think, the Nutcracker with the, a young cast, so I was in that. But staying back and sitting up in the gods and watching the rehearsals for the grown-up and just falling in love with the notion of, of theatre. And I think that, again, in a way, ties up to my youth. Um, I, my, I was pregnant. Uh, I mean, my mother was pregnant with me when... Uh, when they escaped from Estonia and finished up in Germany just before the end of the war, um, when I was born. And I think uh, when I see on SBS those war footages of, of Germany at the time, just the horrors that my parents went through. Uh, but my own instinct was to create 
a world for myself. You know, I, I would play with, with uh, animals and, you know, dolls and, and things and create stories. Um, and that was my refuge, so that the notion of creating stories was sort of very much in the blood. And even when I was at primary school, I used to um, write little shows that we put on at lunchtime, raise money for the Red Cross, you know. So that was there. But the diversion into dance was, I think, very useful for me because it gave me a sense of staging, um, how to use an empty space. And when I first went to the uh, New Fortune Theatre in Perth at the University of Western Australia, I, I thought, this is home for me. It's a big open space. I can fill this. I can, I can use it. So um, that, that was a, a real blessing. But in joining a theatre company, I fell in love with the word. The thing about dance is it's great for emotion, it's great for spirituality, but it can't discuss ideas. And I fell in love with the ideas of words. And so after my three years there, I uh, was quite definitely interested in being a director. I did, did some acting roles as well, but I, <laughs> I said to myself, if you uh, had to choose between being an actor or a director, <laughs> you know, would you rather prefer to work for you or work, you know, off you? And, uh, and I decided that directing was was my area. Great. So, so growing up, you're yep. born in Germany. Yep. Growing up in Melbourne. Are, yep. Are there lots of? Are you reading lots of books? Uh, what What is the existence of words in your life at that time? Um, limited. Um, in fact, in, in many ways, I, I credit theatre for increasing my vocabulary. I mean, I, I spoke obviously enough English um, to get by, but we still lived in an Estonian community. Uh, I think I was uh, five by the time we got out of uh, the uh, internment camps uh, and went into, uh, into Australia. But I was only in Australia, for example, six hours a day on weekdays because the rest of the time we spoke Estonian at home, our friends were Estonian, I was a member of the Estonian Boy Scouts, you know, so it was very much still hanging on to a culture. And it was when I joined the theatre company that I started reading. Obviously, we did literature at school, but I, as I say, concentrated on maths and sciences. Um, and um, it was really there that my vocabulary and, and my understanding uh, started to, to grow exponentially. Yeah. So, so what language do you think in? I mean, it's always an oh, interesting English question. Now. English, English now. now. Yeah, my Estonian has become very rudimentary because I just don't use it, I don't speak it. Um, I went to Estonia some years ago to do a production there and uh, I, it was interesting that I was there for about six weeks, six, eight weeks and by the end of the period I'd felt my speaking language was much better. But was again, returning, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, definitely English. Yeah, um, so um, that was that. Yeah, I fell in love with the words, I fell in love with the ideas and uh, we, when I was in Emerald Hill, and there was uh, classes that Wall uh, would run on weekends. And so I got together with other students and I started directing little playlets. Um, I think my first production was uh, The Love of Don Palimplin for Belissa in His Garden by Garcia Lorca. Wow. It's a one-act play, a lovely play. Yeah. Um, and then what removed me from Albert Hill was um, the fact that I was conscripted. I was caught up in the very first Vietnam conscription. Right. Uh, I claim it's the only lottery I've ever won in my life. <laughs> um, and um, I, was, I was caught in a bind. I was definitely against war, but it was advertised as a war against communism. My parents had escaped from communism, so I was very much caught in the middle. But my 
compromise was to get a deferment um, and to go to university finally. And I came up to the University of New South Wales, which at that stage was the only Australian university with a drama department, because um, I wanted to extend my knowledge of theatre and drama. And um, so that's that's how I, I got that deferment. They, the army caught up with me later, but that's another story. Um, and I had the good fortune of, of meeting and working with Philip Parsons and his wife, Catherine. Catherine Brisbane. Right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, that again opened quite a few doors for me, and I'll always be grateful to Philip for his... Uh, support he was on the staff at uh, yeah he was the, yeah. the head lecturer yeah yeah right. yeah he was the head lecturer yeah and you were studying a was it a bachelor in, uh, in yeah, drama a BA, and yeah. yeah and uh, the first year you had to do a variety of subjects second year you had to concentrate on two so i chose psychology and drama and then by third year you, you could specialize in the area you wanted yeah. yeah so in the middle of my fourth year uh, i was doing an honors course um I got an offer from the University of Western Australia to come and run their newly built Octagon Theatre, uh, which is on the campus. And I, I suspect Philip had a lot to do with that in terms of recommending me. Um, and it was too good an offer. I'd, uh, while I was an undergraduate, I did virtually two or three productions a year with my fellow students. And because I'd had the, the professional background, you know, uh, it gave me a, a degree of expertise and knowledge that, that they didn't have. You've got the hands-on experience yeah. directing the plays. Yeah. What else are you doing? Are you seeing live theatre around town at the Old Toads? Yes, and... yes, yes. We, we, there was no close connection. Robert Quentin, who ran the New South Wales Old Toad Drama Department and NIDA, was not was very keen about keeping them separate. But, but yes, we saw quite a lot of stuff at the Old Toad. And uh, my major theatrical experience up till then was at Emerald Hill and I was very lucky because Wall was very uh, he, he, we would do classical plays we would do new plays like he did the first Albie zoo story uh, did Max Frisch did you know and so he had a very wide broad uh, sense of, of repertoire which again attracted me and I tried to reflect that in my work at the at the university in those days university theatre was quite important because the old tote, um, the independent would generally do classic plays or uh, successes from Broadway, you know, from um, the West End or from uh, from um, uh, America, and um, and they were plays of a type too, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Whereas the whole resurgence of new writing was something left to universities, and I remember like one of my big successes was um, uh, Edward Bond Saved. Um, you know, uh, yes, and and and, and uh, doing doing that sort of of writing, and Harry Kipax would come and review us, which was, I mean, you know, that sort of shows how relatively important university theatre was seen there. Yep. The other a positive thing about it in those days was that you had uh, uh, intervarsity festivals twice a year, which gave you a chance of showing your work around Australia. Um, and, and that was, I think, also partly why I was offered the Octagon job in terms of uh, the work that had been seen, yeah. Are, are your actors only university students or are you able to use prose uh, at, 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 when you're directing for university stuff? That, oh, like when I was at university, no, it was, it was students. Right. Students. Occasionally you use staff members. I yeah. used uh, Philip Parsons who did a, a reading of uh, Death of the Salesman with Philip playing the lead and um, there was a, another interesting final uh, electrical victor Emelianov and Victor 
would also be in some of my plays. So we had that thing. But it was um, when we got to Western Australia to the Octagon, I was able to form a company and I was able to use four or five professional actors. The rest would be taken from staff and students. And that was a really interesting time yeah. uh, in, in terms of, of, of working. And again, the uh, the big thrust stage of the Octagon was something that that I really uh, relished. Well, it's giving you a large canvas yeah, on which to, to paint. Yeah. I, I've heard that a lot of directors, well, not a lot, but quite a few directors are, are worried about getting away from the table, from the reading onto the floor. It was Going onto the floor to me was always a, a joy, you know, because that was what theatre was about. It was about, you know, we, we have two, uh, two words in theatre. We have spectator and we have audience. The audience listens, the spectator watches. Yes. And you tell the story as much through what is actually happening on the stage, the interpersonal relationships. So you could virtually, and it was interesting that Stanislavski started looking at this towards the end of his uh, career where he would do the play without words, just explore the physicalization and see how much of the story would be told through the relationships of people there. Yeah. Yes, yes, all the proxemics. What could be read by the audience. That's right, absolutely, absolutely. So it's a a very full experience that both seeing and, and hearing together yeah as humans we uh, employ body language all the time don't absolutely. we absolutely. consciously or not absolutely which again communicates yes. a message absolutely and uh, and it's um, the interesting thing from an acting point of view is to make actors aware that uh, they can communicate subtext through mannerisms they can yeah yeah that they, extra life they can reveal uh, you know so so saying to someone directly i love you you say i love you and you're not looking at them. <laughs> and that says a volume besides the words. Yeah, Do you understand yeah, that? Yeah. Um, so that, to me, again, is the interesting subtleties of, uh, of, of Western acting. And I mentioned to you about working in this intercultural theatre. Most of the, uh, the forms in, in um, uh, Asia uh, are old, belong to the, to the older than perhaps even Greeks, the Greek theatre. Um, but um, it's very much, again, like classical ballet or like acting used to be, that you would adopt a series of gestures and things. which sure, would, uh, melodrama. Yeah, yeah, which would indicate what you were feeling and then you'd try to feel that, but, but you had to do it through uh, stay away from me, you know, or I love you, you know. Well, well um, yeah. in Japanese forms of theatres, there's a whole fan language, isn't that's there? Right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. that's right, absolutely. And, um, and whereas in Western acting, you have far more subtleties and far more challenges of choice for the actor because in Eastern tradition you have to fill the form, you have to learn the form and fill it. In Western theatre you create your form and that's why we'll go and see Hamlet a thousand times because we want to see what that actor does with the part, not because what's going to happen in the story, but what do they bring to the role, you know? Do the Eastern forms have those particular roles that are done by actors again and again? Oh, yes, the repertoire is, is very much um, uh, a constant. In fact, there's, there's, in the traditional forms, there is no new repertoire. It is a, and, and it is, again, on how skillfully the person fills the form. But they can't make it their own in terms of the interpretation of the, of the form. That's, that's the, uh, the, the limiting thing to me, and that's why Western theatre, I think, is so much for freer because of the, the individual choices that an actor can make. Right. Yeah. 
Is there less of a reliance on text in Eastern theatre? Oh, no, no. no the text, again, not. is very firm. The form is, is very, very firm. Um, uh, it's just the ability to fill the form. Um, that, that's all. But rather than create, creating a role is not, is yeah. not what we have in, in Western theatre, yeah. Now, were your parents happy about a career in the arts? For no, you? no. Oh. My, my father's an artist. That's a lot of his work is up there. On oh, the beautiful. Walls. And um, so uh, when I announced my decision to not to go to university, but pursue a theatre career, there was a sort of a few eye-rolling, but they did support me, bless them. And uh, the, the funny thing was my grandparents actually were managers of a theatre in Estonia in a city called Tartu. And uh, my mother, when she grew up, because she was a local juvenile, sort of found herself in lots of plays <laughs> if they required a young, a young girl or a young person. So, so it's in the DNA. Yeah, 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 I think it's in the DNA, yeah. Who, who do you consider to have been your great teachers through your career? Oh, well, I, I, I've got to uh, take my hat off to uh, Annette Pollard, who she later married, became Annette Grounds, who, who gave me that encouragement as a dancer and, and actually paid for my professional lessons. She was a, a wonderful woman. Um, Philip Parsons, obviously, I think was a, a great influence. Walt Cherry before that and George Whaley because George was part of that that company. So I remember, you know, like my job when I started at the theatre was like cleaning. So I'd be cleaning the theatre or washing dishes or whatever, but they'd be rehearsing and I'd be watching, listening to the rehearsal. And I think that's still... The best way of learning rather than the drama school is the old way of being an apprentice and watching the older actors work. Yeah. And, and, and osmosis, just yeah, absorbing through That's right. And, observation. And, and not saying, oh, I like that or I don't like that, but why does that work or why doesn't it work? You know, those, those sorts of questions. So, uh, yeah, so that, uh, yeah, and then um, uh, I, I guess once I left uh, university, um, and went to work in Perth, then I guess I was very much uh, my own boss, my own pusher, as it were, yeah. You had a, a period of time at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts? Yes. I guess from those early days at Emerald Hill, when we had those classes on weekends, the notion of learning um, as well as, as performing um, was very important to me. And um, so since uh, following that, like when I was at university, I would run some drama classes, uh, acting classes on um, uh, week, weekdays or week, weekends. And um, the same thing when I went to the Octagon, again, I ran classes uh, because I was interested in, I really feel that as a teacher, you learn as much as you teach. Um, and uh, so that, that was very much in, in my blood. So when the Whopper job came up, um, uh, it, it was something to, to, to really attack because it was very new. The school had just been going for two years, I think, because um, I was with the... Um, my uh, first year there was the third years with the original group who were going through, or we were just graduating. No, yes, I was at the end of the third year. Um, and a, a very good friend of mine from the uh, Octagon days was a man called Jeff Gibbs, and Jeff was the instigator of, of WAPA. Uh, Whopper was also very interesting because, unlike most drama schools, Jeff was not interested in professional teachers. He was interested in professionals. So who practitioners. Could, practitioners yeah. who knew what was required, who knew what the standards were. Knew. 
and um, and that was very very refreshing I think at that time it's swung back the other way now in La Salle in Singapore you have to have a PhD before you can teach right you know and it's anyway. and that cuts off a lot of talent doesn't sure it, it does. that, uh... yeah so Jeff um, was was an old uh, friend and uh, he instigated Whopper he, he was the one who who set Whopper up uh, and um, so I, I, I got a job with him uh, and stayed there for, for five years, in, in fact. Um, when, you, when you're teaching acting, what are you developing your own method or are you using well, a lot of Stanislavski? Well, you, it's, it's sort of... I don't believe there's any right method in the sense that I think that every actor has different strengths and different weaknesses and what they need to find out is what works for them It doesn't work for them. Um, and I think that's even further exacerbated by the fact that the modern actor, as I say, opposed to Shakespeare's actors who, whether they're working for Shakespeare's company or somebody else, the standard of acting was the same. The acting spaces were the same. You know, the, the, so you knew what it was that you had to do as an actor. But today's modern actor has to work on film, television, stage, big stages, small stages. So they have to have a, a wide range of... Uh, of uh, um, technique in order to to find these things, they also have to work on different styles. You know, this is so saying this is a, a romantic style. This is a classical style. Restoration. This realism. This is uh, surrealism. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is tragedy. This is comedy. Tragic comedy. So that the basically they've got to learn the repertoire. They've got to learn the sense of the range. Uh, whether you've got um, six months to rehearse a new play that you're developing, uh, six weeks to do a standard play, uh, six minutes if you're doing on television, you know. Yeah. Um, you, and you can't bring the same uh, uh, techniques to bear in all those situations. So what I encouraged my students to do was to, in the first year, very much to find out what their strengths and weaknesses were and so that they could start concentrating on their weaknesses, you know, um, and obviously rather than just you know relying on their strengths and to make them aware of the different uh, sorts of challenges that they meet as an actor and um, so I, while I was there I introduced a, a film and television sequence with a really interesting man called John Beaton who was a local filmmaker um, but but also I was very keen that in second and third year so first year was the discovery year you know finding out about themselves uh, second year they would do six plays in uh, uh, studio plays uh, to limited audiences and then in final year they would do another six plays um, uh, to a wider audience uh, in bigger theatres and with those 12 plays across those two years I wanted to cover the whole base I remember when I was a young actor meeting an older actor who mourned and said I'd love to do Shakespeare but I've never done it and I don't feel like I auditioned successfully for it yeah. I thought yeah well if you go to an acting school, you should at least have a taste of the classics and the and the modern plays. So, in those across those um, six productions, we'd do self-devised piece, we'd do a um, you know modern pieces, classical pieces, a musical, you know e every variety of play, so they could have some taste of it. Yes, uh, yeah, and to, and to make their palette as That's broad right, as possible, absolutely. because it makes their job getting ability that much stronger. Yeah. Um, so that was very much the uh, the principles that I sort of uh, used at, at Whopper at that particular time, yeah. There seems to be a plethora of training institutions nowadays. Yes, um, yes. But 
surely that means there's less work than ever. I mean, let's... I mean, that's, uh, the, that's the great sadness. Is, and I think that on the whole, training institutes have, are better on the whole than they were. But um, the opportunities are far less. Yeah. And that's, um, that's uh, a, a terrible... <sighs> terrible indictment about Australian society. You open the, the paper, you've got six, seven, eight pages on sports. At the end of the page, you, you have lucky you get one page on the arts. Yeah. And that covers all the arts. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's a, a question of... Yet the the sense of being an Australian is much more to do with the arts than it is to do with sport, yeah. fundamentally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got... Um, uh, working with a, a lovely man called Mick Barnes, who was... a won a Walkley Award last year, he's elderly, but he's written this wonderful piece uh, called Bully Boys. And it's about uh, J.B. Archibald, J.F. Archibald, who uh, uh, founded the Bulletin uh, magazine, hence Bully Boys. Um, and he was very keen to sort of uh, um, find uh, or describe the Australian character, as opposed to in those days, in the early part of the 13th century, um, that we were still very much seen as um, as Englishmen, you know, offshore Englishmen. And one of his methods was to pit the the poetry of Henry Lawson against the poetry of Banjo Patterson. Oh, wow. Because Lawson was the one who lived in the bush and right. the, all the deprivations of the bush, and the sliver, whereas um, um, Patterson was much more the well-heeled guy who, you know, the man for Snow River, you know, uh, uh, and he would pit their poems against each other in order to begin with, what is the Australian? Is it, is it Lawson, is it Patterson? And obviously it's a merger between the two. Yes, um, there's all those perspectives. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, I was just so using that as an example of, of the importance of, of arts. And again, I was very lucky that when I started in the 60s, um, Australian playwriting was just having got a kickstart with some of the 17th doll, was starting to take off. People were interested in local writing. Um, and the smaller theatres were starting to do Australian plays as part of their their repertoire. Um, so, so that notion of finding our voice, uh, I think again, is very very important. Yeah. And so, when you had uh, uh, Nimrod Street starting in the early seventies, um, and concentrating on new writing, it was a, again a revolution at that time because the standard companies would do, as I say, uh, a repertoire of West End or or uh, Broadway successes, you know. Um, yes. But so for Australians to see something like The Removalists yeah. presenting domestic absolutely. violence, oh, police corruption. Absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. I stage managed that production at... The uh, original production was at La Mama in uh, in Melbourne, but the first Sydney production was at Nimrod Street. Um, and I stage managed... I have very vivid memories of, of that wonderful power of that play. And even Harry Miller saw it and uh, transferred the play to... Uh, to uh, City Theatre, the, one of the uh, uh, theatres, because there's the importance, and it, that was a wonderful time to be in theatre because of this flowering of, of our own theatre. And the sadness, as we said before, is that through to lack of funding and the limitations have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And, yeah. uh, and um, although we have the potential to keep going, uh, we don't have the, uh, the means to do so. Yeah. You look at a play like Removalist too, which is 50 years old. Mm-hmm. I read it again recently. Nothing much has changed in, in Australia. Absolutely no. Yeah. Absolutely Which not. is the horrifying thing. And the story at Nimrod was that um, when we put it on, we, we, we learnt that we had uh, 
earn the displeasure of the police force. And they didn't do anything, but we found suddenly that the health department was there saying, you need more toilets. Ah, right. You know, and so for a while, Nimrod Street had more toilets per house <laughs> than any other theatre in the world. You know, there was that those sorts of uh, uh, pressures put on. To, but uh, we were, again, very lucky there to have Ken Haller, who was, you know, a barrister, and uh, uh, he was a, an extraordinary man. Um, John Bell gets all the credit, but, but Ken, uh, what he instigated... Uh, you know, he used to gather the kid shows on the island. He he did the first Aboriginal show at Nimrod Street. He, you know, he did women's shows. He he was a real innovator, a wonderful innovator. So he's a great loss. But if if theatre is causing people to react, um, it's doing its job. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Norman Ahmed. Yeah, a, a similar play yeah. around that time, yeah. which uh, yeah. you know things haven't changed much in fifty well, years. I was I was lucky again to go to university with Alex, so we formed a, a very close relationship. So I've done a couple of productions of uh, of Norman Armand and uh, a number of Alex's other players. He's a, again a wonderful writer, but but yes, absolutely, absolutely. You've been a great champion of new writing. I, I have. I've always been drawn to it. I, again, I suppose uh, while we're talking about new writing. Uh, when I was at the uh, Octagon, just before the army caught up with me, um, we did Chapel Perilous, Dorothy Hewitt's play. Uh, and uh, Philip had introduced me to Dorothy. She was a, a lecturer at the University of Western Australia, and we formed a very close t- uh, tie together. Um, we did a number of her plays across the years. Uh, but I uh, remember Chapel Perilous especially, because the, the day after we opened, I went into the army. <laughs> anyway. Um, it's it's a great tragedy that a lot of those plays don't receive a second production or a third production. Yeah, though though it's interesting that like um, um, when you're talking about the Removalists and uh, and Chapel Perilous uh, and and Norman Armand, they are studied at school. Yeah. So they they're still alive in. in and there's a new generation yeah, appreciating. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But even uh, today, you're, you're working on new works like The Gospel According to Saint Paul by yes. Jonathan Biggins. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I saw a great workshop of uh, a play about Winita Nielsen by Barry Dickens. Oh, right. Well, I, I did that workshop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And we're still hoping we've, we've got another reading plan for it for the old fits in December. So we're hoping that that will get some local support uh, because it's such a, a wonderful King's Cross story, you know. Yes, absolutely. An I mean, important story in terms of, you know, I feel that Juanita was almost like the Joan of Arc of Australian society, um, yeah, extraordinary woman. Um, and again, those Australian figures need to be celebrated, and I don't think there's any, anything better than a play to, to actually show that off, yeah. There's a, a, a thousand stories in the naked city. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's very true. I think, you know, like when I walk in the streets and I walk past, not huge crowds of people, but... I know that each of those individuals has stories to tell. And the theatre gives voice not to everybody, but to enough for people to be able to relate to. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And to see their stories on stage in some form, again, gives them a greater insight into their experiences. And I think that's always been the the purpose of theatre, is to, to, to share those stories. And the big breakthrough, of course, came when the, in the Greeks early Greek theatre, the, a chorus of 50 would sing a story, and then they discovered that if you actually enacted it, it was more powerful. 
<laughs> Same again with uh, uh, later in the 19th century when you uh, had Emil Zola discovering that he'd written a novel called Therese Raquin and uh, realised that if he put it on as a play it would reach more people. And also the, the power of a theatre is that you're influenced by the people around you. It's not just you and the play reading it, but the experience is, is all-embracing. And we often say in the theatre, if you can get 60% of the audience, they'll carry another 20%, 30%, and then the 10% you'll never, you'll never reach with that particular play anyway. Yeah, yeah. But that, that communal thing, again, like sports, you know, yeah. that feeling of participating in the event is so important. You know? And it's sometimes not, it continues on after the two and a half hours of the play into conversation yeah. on the way home or at yeah. coffee the next day. Abs- or Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that one of the, the best um, definitions I heard about theatre was that theatre, good theatre, speculates. In other words, good theatre asks questions. It doesn't give answers. If it gives answers, it's propaganda. It, it asks the questions and then that's why, as you say, people will talk about it. What do you think? What do you feel? You know, and uh, sets up the, the topic. Yeah. Yeah. And even as practitioners, I'm, I'm sure you would agree, I love working on a new play because you are you open a window to a whole new world, you know, through your research yeah. and, and appreciation yeah. because yeah. you've got to bring an authenticity yeah. and a truth to what yeah. the story that you're telling. And and the wonderful thing too about theatre is you realise that of all of Shakespeare's 35 plays or whatever, there was only one set in contemporary England. Wow, I guess. Now, and the reason for that is that... Um, I, when I was teaching at uh, NUS, uh, National University of Singapore, um, I wanted to give an example of an Australian place, so I looked at Rivers of China. Um, Elmer de Grown. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, um, no, 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 sorry, The Precious Woman, um, uh, Louis Nara, I think. Um, and um, it was about um, the wife of a warlord in, in, Japan, in, uh, in China. And, and he gets killed and she takes over. And I remember my students saying, why are we doing this? What would an Australian author know about the Chinese? And I said, it's not about the Chinese. It's about feminism. Yeah. So again, that idea of him writing a play set in that period was not to discuss the period, but use that as a vehicle for examining the role of a woman in society. Yeah. And uh, that's again the power of theatre is that it comes through the back door. Because if you say um, this is a play about uh, misogyny, you've got very strong feelings about it. But if it get under your belt, <laughs> then you can actually learn some new things about it yes. as well. Yeah. Uh, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <yeah. laughs> Let's take a playwright like Shakespeare. Is there a work in his uh, canon that you've returned to many times? Um, yeah, I, I think that, that the problem with Shakespeare is the, is the relative largeness of, of cast. So one of the, the sadnesses for me since I've stopped running companies is that I'm at the mercy of what's offered. And so you generally tend to find what's, what's on offer is things that are like on the school syllabus or what, what have you. Um, I just recently realised that there were a couple of Shakespeare's I hadn't read. And when I was in uh, Singapore, I read uh, Titus Andronicus which is a wonderful revenge play. It's uh, extraordinarily powerful, um, shifting allegiances and, and uh, treachery and... Uh, and violence. And violence, but yeah. it's not on any school syllabus, so you, you wouldn't be able to do it. Did you understand? Yep, yep. Um, I, there are other plays that sort of really strike you as being very relevant, like Enemy of the People, I think, 
is so relevant to today's climate change thing, the, 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 the denial um, of climate change because of money, because of you know profits and things like that. People don't want to um, place themselves in a losing position. Um, so um, it, that's sometimes going back to old plays is, is terrific because they still echo with issues. Yeah. And I think that as a um, artistic director, as if you had the choice of plays, is you're looking for plays that ring bells for the audience, directly or indirectly. You know that, that sort of uh, um, discuss their concerns, discuss their uh, uncertainties. Yeah. yeah. So, say you're returning to Romeo and Juliet for the yeah. fifth time. <laughs> How do you find new life to breathe into that that fifth production? Well, I, th- I think this is. You find new life in the theatre constantly because you're working with different people on a different stage. And when you're doing a play that you've done before, my philosophy is always how do I extend what I did before, not what did I do before. So it's not a, a copy of, 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 um, of that original production. It's rather than t- using it as, as, as a starting point and, and pushing further. So, um, yeah... Yeah. No, I, I find it a constant challenge, but the biggest challenge, again, is you're working in a different space to a different audience with different actors. Yeah. And uh, as I said before, you know, no one actor will play Hamlet the same way, no one actor will play Romeo or Juliet the same way. And what you're trying to do is get, as a director, is to get the quality that the actor can bring to the role. We're all going to solve this problem together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Guthrie, uh, Tyrone Guthrie, I had a great pleasure of meeting when I was in and working with briefly when I was at the Octagon, um, said that the director is the ideal audience of one. So that in rehearsal room, you're looking and you're feeding back what you're getting from the actors and trying to push them a little bit further, trying to clarify things. And I think that's that's very true. Yeah. Yes, as, as the actor, we're always looking for that uh, confirmation yeah. from yeah. the director. yeah. You are the the parent yeah. of the of the production, and, and so that's why I think the the notion of the director as a dictator is, is is silly. It is a collaboration. It is working with the actor to create something, and to, obviously the director's main job is to create a unity, so that the actors are working together. The the whole style of the play is together, and that the movement of the play makes sense, so that you have that overall perspective. Um, of it, but it's it's not a, a question of, of telling actors this is how you must do it all. Yeah. yeah, encouraging them to bring their own qualities, their own ideas, to the to the table as it were. You had periods steering the ships of the Hunter Valley Theatre Company yeah, yeah. and the Perth National Theatre Company. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What what are the challenges of of running a company, being the artistic oh, director? Look, well, the Hunter Valley Theatre Company is a great great example. Um, I always try to again encourage local writers, and John O'Donoghue, who wrote Essington Lewis, was was a, a wonderful local writer, and um, uh, so it was people that I met um, who either auditioned for me or I would see in, in amateur productions. Uh, people like Jonathan, I saw Jonathan work with Jonathan first, just before I joined the uh, Hunter Valley. I did a play at, at the university where he was a student, and John John Doyle. Um, Roy and HG. Yeah, yeah. was another uh, actor I met, um, uh, Alan McFadden, who did a lot of the music for our plays. I still work with him as a, a musical director. Um, 
So that, that sense of creating an ensemble to me is very important because I, I believe that audiences get their favourite actor and then they're interested in seeing their favourite actor tackling a different role, tackling a different style, you know? Um, and that's part of the magic the old, old theatres was. Uh, in Estonia, they have um, um, uh, huge companies. Like I, I worked when I worked there, we did a translation of Williamson's Money and Friends. And this is a, a, a town of 35,000 and they have a theatre company with 40 permanent actors because they play repertoire, they play a different yeah. play every night. and they Rehearsal during the day. And a big theatre and a small theatre. Yeah. And uh, each theatre has a repertoire of ten plays and in the course of year they'll renew five of each so that there's rehearsals for the continuing thing. But the constant challenge to the actors is great, whereas the, today, that unfortunately, we have sort of TV casting where you get the part because you've played it before, you know, because it's typecasting. Yeah. Rather than in a in a, a repertory company, you having to push people into areas that they haven't done before and different size roles yeah, as well. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, and that's uh, can be really exciting if it comes off. Obviously, sometimes it doesn't come off, but the, the adventure of, of of trying those things, I think, is very very important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What considerations did you have to make in programming a season? You you obviously have to know your audience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I see a funny story about Hunter Valley. Um, uh, my first wife, Helen, came from Newcastle, so I had a little bit of experience with Newcastle, not a lot. Uh, and I'd, I'd read that Newcastle had per capita the the highest, um, uh, what's the word, uh, for feigned, when you have a, a feigned illness. Uh, hypochondria. Uh, hypochondria. Um, for all sorts of reasons, perhaps to do with the steelworks or whatever. And so I immediately thought, the play to kick off with was the Imagine Universe. Yes, of course. You know, <laughs> uh, which was fine. Um, except I remember doing a radio interview and the uh, person talked to me and said, uh, Molly Air, uh, is uh, she related to Pam Air? Oh, dear. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, but but by by using local actors, I, I um, encourage the local audience and I would make a... a uh, a task of seeing as many local amateur productions as well and if anybody stood out I'd see if I could find an opportunity to use them which also gave them an opportunity to extend themselves but also would bring their audience to, to our theatre yeah. yeah yeah. so um, yeah and there was um, cleverly des- devising ways to build your audience well I think I think you've got to think of the audience the old rule of some was uh, two for them one for us you know uh, in a sense of the repertoire, you know, that that you do one play which was challenging to yourself, and the other two plays would be more accessible to your general audience. Mm. But to to make the audience interested in your company, I think to me is a, is the great achievement. Yeah. And I think this is awful these days, where where people, as I say, uh, like in television, you, you can't create a character. You've got six minutes, so you've got to look and sound like the character in the first instance, you know. Yeah. And even in theatre now, people are cast for what they've played before, the sorts of roles they've played before, rather than giving them an opportunity to extend themselves. Yeah. You've directed a bit for television with um, yeah, yeah, Home had, and Away and I had Blue Hills and Neighbours. Yeah, Does that require a different approach? Yes, yes, very much in terms of, um, as I said, you, there's no opportunity to create characters. You've got to create the drama and you've got to do it quickly and you've got to find the... 
Intelligence is really interesting because there's two moments of creativity there. You've got the creativity of shooting the, the thing, and the second phase of creativity is editing it. And when you're shooting it, you're in, you've got to be mindful of the edit. Not concentrating the edit, but have I got enough variation of, of, of shots? But the, I remember when I first started working to TV, um, they said the three main um, areas of concern was um, one, getting a shot on time, two, getting enough coverage, different shots, and three, getting a performance. Right. <laughs> you know? but the so telling the story comes in, last, really. Absolutely, yeah. but the time, and as you can imagine, like for a, f a television say, thing of whether you're doing a, an hour show or a half hour show, you're working over a five week period, right? So in the uh, the first week you do your first two weeks you do your uh, uh, your reading uh, uh, your casting uh, you go around with the location manager find her locations and do the preparation as it were for the play third week is you uh, you shoot the location scenes fourth week you shoot the studio scenes and fifth week you put it together right right but while I'm doing one week one another director is doing week two another director doing week three another so that there is the the churning out of it is yeah. there. So that's why you can't afford to go over time in your thing because someone's behind you. It's like playing golf. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> on, the, on the tee behind. Absolutely. So, it, I mean, there are there are moments of I, I enjoyed it. I must say, there are moments where you think I couldn't have done this better if I'd had twice as long for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're constantly working under the sense of pressure, and on the whole the scripts tend to be less complex than in the theatre. You know, they, they tend to be more accessible, especially in your neighbours and, and yeah. homes and way. Well, know. if you're coming in just for one episode also, yeah. you have to be aware of story arcs, I guess. Absolutely. And, uh, and and also you have to rely on your actors to be able to continue their, their To characters. join the dots that yeah, you, you're yeah. not able to. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's mostly about, uh, as I say, getting the shots, getting the, the coverage. Um, uh, yeah, look, it was really interesting. I had 10 years of it and uh, working on a whole number of uh, things. I, the one I enjoyed mostly, which I felt was most complex, was MDA, uh, Medical Defence Australia, uh, an ABC show, which was uh, based on real uh, case histories of doctors being sued by patients. Um, and a lot of that sort of is covered with mediation rather than going on trial. But they were always interesting stories in terms of the doctor's point of view and the patient, patient's point of view. So they were interesting conflict. Do you have a favourite playwright, Arnie? Oh, no, I suppose the answer is the person I'm working on. Um, Which is generally yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think, again, as, as I said, ninety early 90s, the last time I ran a company, and so that for you know, almost 30 years, I haven't been in a position of deciding what to do, um, certainly deciding what projects I work on if I have a choice, but uh, but you, you can't nominate the play or the playwright. Mm. Um, but that's okay too, because as I say, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. You've worked with playwrights who are long gone and playwrights who are living. Yes. We can consult the playwrights who are living. It's a bit more difficult if they're, if they're long gone. That's do you, true. Do you have more freedom if the playwright is dead or is it a good thing to have the playwright 
accessible? I, I've always uh, been... Uh, some directors don't want the playwright anywhere near rehearsals. Uh, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm more than happy for them to come and sit in the process and, and give me feedback. The only difficulty I've ever found with a playwright is that they don't understand the process of acting and so that if the performance isn't right on day one, they get worried. Whereas as a director, you know that the actor is building up to the role. Do you know what I mean? It's, yep, yep. It's, uh, so that's the only area where a playwright is panicking about an actor. I say, no, it's okay, it's fine, they're on, they're on their way. Um, but uh, otherwise, I mean, like, I think David Williamson used to do this, and I think it's, again, a great thing. He would come to the rehearsals of his, especially the first productions of his plays, and sit in and make more changes, you know, tighten up, add something. So that, that idea where they said good plays are not written, but they're rewritten. Yeah. And, um, and so, so that, that ability for the playwright to be involved in the production, I think, is important. I think of all the creative roles, uh, it's the director who has the most um, effort to expend, physical, emotional, creative. I, I find it just, just staggering. It's an exhausting job directing? Um, it can be all-embracing. I think the, the other great um, parallel for directing is giving birth. Yep. And that the idea is that finally you produce the baby and the baby has its own life. So by the end of rehearsals, you hand it to the actors, you, you know, and that, that giving all off, giving the production on is a great moment of catharsis for you, you know, it's, it's a sense of, of, um, of stepping back, although you know, you'll come give notes and what have you, but fundamentally it's now for the actors, the actors to do, whereas, as I said, in film and television, you've got the editing process where you can be much more actively involved, I don't like the way he says that line, so I'll cut the reaction of somebody else while he says it, you know, uh, to minimise the effect of the line or what have you, yeah. yeah. As actors, it's it's very rare that we have a performance which we feel we got absolutely 100% right. Yeah. Do you feel that with productions? Yes, of course. Of course. Um, um, I think it would be very smug to think this is, uh, this is now perfect. It's the, it's the aim towards perfection that every artist feels, you know, that sense of how can I get a bit more out of this, how can I clarify this. That's the constant... Uh, struggle a constant uh, challenge of, of rehearsals uh, and uh, it's it's something to aim for perfection but it's a realization you're hardly going to get it <laughs> i mean sometimes you get a performance that you think oh that's fantastic it's a really really fine performance but very rarely is that performance sort of um, there with the whole cast yeah. do you read reviews yep yeah yep yep yeah, I follow uh, Noel Coward's advice. He said, uh, um, he said, um, a bad review can uh, can spoil your breakfast, but shouldn't affect your dinner. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one person's opinion. Isn't that's it? right. And and then you look at it, and and basically, yes, that's that's the principle I use. Is is there anything I can learn from it? Is there anything I feel that yes, I think they've said something that's important or whatever. Um, rather than you know uh, being intimidated by it or dismissing it, but it's it's the same thing again. With an actor offers something, you say, "Well, show me," and you you try it out, uh, which gives them an opportunity to try out their idea and gives you an opportunity to assess it. Yeah, mm. you embrace two roles expertly: directing and teaching. Is there one that you prefer over the other, or I, I do they both feed parts of your soul? I think I think directing is really my my love. And, you know, after five years of Popper, I, I, I did a handful of plays, out, you know, obviously at Whopper, 
uh, for the students and also some for the companies in Perth. But I knew that my love was in directing. So I enjoy uh, teaching, but I'm not a I'm not a um, habitual teacher. I'm not a you, you know that's that's not my passion to teach. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy teaching, but I would not want to do that. Uh, whereas the the challenge of directing, as I said before, with working with new people in a different play and a new venue, different audiences, is is always a challenge. Yeah. Well, Arnie, thank you. It's been thank a delight you. to to pick your brain over the the last I'll hour hope you're and, able to, uh, and hear a rich stories of a rich career. Yeah, I hope you'll be able to um, to get enough edit. Enough. <laughs> this is the edit <laughs> again. It's the important thing. Um, the what what I've found and uh, inevitable is is once I I turned sixty five, my television work dried up, uh, and it is an ageist thing. Um, and I, I find that that is a, a reality. In Europe, it's it's almost the um, the other way around that the old people stay on till they die, <laughs> as actors or directors or what have you, and it's hard for young people to get going. Yeah. But here we have a, the opposite sense of, and I and I, I don't resent it because as I was young myself once and had opportunities, but it's I, f- I feel that uh, in theatre it's very much like a a cricket team. You know, you've got to find the balance between. The experienced and the up and coming, so the up and coming can learn from the experienced. So you don't have a team of all experienced people because suddenly they all go. You've got no team, or if they're all young, then it becomes too difficult to find a, a heart for it. So to find that balance between new actors or young actors or uh, experienced actors, and the same again with uh, young directors or experienced directors. I, I'm, I'm 75 now. I uh, feel I've uh, uh, still got my wits about me. I feel I can contribute things, but I'm seen as too old by most of the industry, you know. Uh, and and I accept that, you know. But but I, uh, well, to a degree, I accept. It. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of pill yeah. to swallow. Uh, well, I, I've been lucky that over the over the years, I've had a quite an interesting um, career in the sense that I've done all sorts of things: you know, film, uh, television, um, theatre teaching in universities, teaching at vocational schools. So I have a very wide experience, which I think has always been useful, but I'm not identified with any particular area. So in the 10 years that I did television, most of the theatre people thought, oh, he's no longer interested in theatre, yeah, because he's doing television. And it was hard getting into television because oh, you're a theatre director, you know, and I don't. So we tend to do that a bit yeah, in this country, don't we? Yeah, we we yeah. typecast in yeah. all creative roles. Absolutely. Um, and so that can be a little bit frustrating. But I, 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 as I say, Knockwood, I've been lucky. I've had enough, um, been freelancing since uh, for the last 25 years, and uh, I've, uh, I've found enough work. Um, I'm not on the pension, I'm not on uh, um, Job Seeker or anything at the moment. I'm finding enough work. To, uh, to keep myself going and the television years were really useful because you get very well paid in television and which helped us uh, buy this place some 20 odd years ago yeah. Yeah. yeah well let's hope 2021 brings great gems thank you very much thank you hope so yeah Arnie is a delightful bloke as you can hear a true gentleman of the theatre generous in his wisdom and passionate about his practice I'm joined next time on the podcast by another gent of the theatre Terence Clark. He has extensive credits as a composer of some of our most beloved Australian musicals, 
Summer Rain, The Venetian Twins and Variations. As a director, he ran the Hunter Valley Theatre Company and for many years has been an educator, commencing life as a teacher, but also significant time at NIDA, where he was head of the directing course. My guest next time on Stages, Mr Terence Clark. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to the Stages podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time.